ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hayley Campbell is a journalist and she's the author of a book that's uncovered a kind of secret society that operates right throughout the Western world. This is a very loosely connected group of people who go about their business unseen by the rest of us, behind closed doors, deep within institutions, inside their workshops. But they are not hiding from us. It's more like we're hiding from them. These are the invisible people who work in the death industry. The funeral directors, the embalmers, the grave diggers, the death mask makers, the people who gently dress the dead for their funerals. This is a world that's fired Hayley Campbell's curiosity ever since she was a little kid when she became fascinated with what happens in that mysterious interregnum between the dying and the funeral. Hayley's wonderful book is called All the Living and the Dead, an exploration of people who make death their life's work. And just a heads up, much of what follows will be really quite lovely and even uplifting, but there will be parts that some people might find distressing as well. Hello, Hayley. Hello. You're UK-based, but you grew up in Brisbane, a city I know well. If you left Brisbane alone for two weeks, the jungle would take it back. We all know that when we <laughs> live there. There's lots of life everywhere, but lots of death and decay in the natural world. Electrocuted possums, squished python roadkill. <laughs> Did that sort of thing catch your eye when you were a little kid? Yeah, but for me it was the magpies. Between my house and my school, there always seemed to be a dead magpie. And sometimes at school assembly, the, the principal would tell us to avoid a certain street as we were walking to school because it stank. <laughs> and, <laughs> which is just the most alien thing to tell anyone in England now. But, right. but obviously when I was given the location of the stink, I would want to go and investigate, whereas everybody else ran away. When my kids were little, my wife and I took them to Stradbroke Island and on Cylinder Beach one day we saw half a manta ray, a huge manta ray oh. that a great white had bitten in half. And so you could oh, wow. see through the cross-section all of its internal organs and my kids just spent oh, a good hour running towards it, poking <laughs> with a stick and then running away again. There's some kind of fascination with the nature of decay in a place like Queensland. Yeah, I definitely think the jungle and the heat added to my fascination. Yeah. Now you brought up your dad. And I think when we're growing up, we think our house is normal and everything the family does is normal. <laughs> your dad is Eddie Campbell. And Eddie Campbell is the, the great comic book artist who, throughout your early childhood, was drawing the classic graphic novel, From Hell, written by Alan Moore, based on the Jack the Ripper murders. And it was a kind of a forensic exploration of Victorian society as well. How do you remember his workspace at that time when you were little, Hayley? Well, speaking of stink, there was one moment where he was drawing a cover for From Hell, he was painting it, and he went and he got a cow's kidney from the butcher and he wrapped it in a hanky and he laid it out in the, the lounge room so that he could paint it. And at the time, I was working on my own book of horrors. It was called The Ripper Files. I just pinched the name off some book I'd seen on his shelf. And it was a compendium of all the, the horrible ways that you could die. So he was painting this kidney. And so was I, because I was sitting beside him. But he was working against the clock because the flies were gathering. And in my version, oh. you can actually see the flies, but he's edited <laughs> them out of his. 
And his his workspace was um, covered in reference pictures of autopsies and crime scene photographs. But, but I didn't think it was weird because I thought all dads were doing this at this point <laughs> because I didn't have much experience of other people's dads. It was only when I went to school and uh, I learned that other people's dads were out during the day. They weren't sitting at home drawing dead ladies. And then they'd come to my house and they'd be like, what is this? And... I'd have to explain, you know, as a little kid, I'd have to explain the crime scene photographs of Jack the Ripper murders. What happened when you brought some of those drawings to school? <laughs> <laughs> well, we recycled a lot in our house. So whenever Dad was, he'd have lots of photocopies of his art. It just went on the recycling pile, which we would use as spare paper for homework and things. And I wouldn't even check what was on the back. And I, I remember once I did my homework on the back of some pretty gruesome <laughs> murder scenes. And I handed it in and um, I, I got into trouble and my parents were phoned. But I don't know what she was expecting from, from my dad since he did them. <laughs> <laughs> what did you conclude from the reaction you got to this? Well, I definitely got the sense that I had peeped something I wasn't supposed to see and that adults in general, aside from my parents, were keeping something from me. And this was even more acute, I think, because I went to a Catholic school. So I, I've always had lots of questions about death, and I would ask them, but the priest didn't like it. And um, he, he kind of considered me a problem, and he chucked me out of his classes. But if you ask about death in a Catholic school, you get told about heaven and souls and things. And, and I didn't want to know about that. I wanted to know about skeletons and where the meat goes when you put bodies in the ground and how they become skeletons. I just wanted to know all the practicalities. You write about your first experience of the death of someone you knew. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, the first person I knew to die was my friend Harriet, who was only 13 at the time. And it happened in February when there were, there's always huge floods in Brisbane. And her, um, her dog, Belle, fell into the creek and it was flooded white water. And Harriet tried to save her and the dog survived and Harriet didn't. Um, and so that was the first funeral I remember going to. I was sitting in the front row with all the other girls from, from school. And I just kept staring at this white box and I wanted to know what was inside it, because obviously it was a closed coffin. And because I had all of these horrific images of dead bodies and dead people and zombies and Jack the Ripper crime scenes, to me, that's what dead people looked like. I just kept trying to picture Harriet. And I don't remember any eulogies or, or who else was, was there or what happened, because I was so consumed by trying to picture her. And I do wonder... If someone had just opened the lid and said, look, she looks like your friend, if I would have gone on to be consumed by thinking about something else. But I just couldn't get it out of my head. And I realized then that somebody must know what she looks like because somebody had to take her out of the creek. And I assume somebody had to dress her and dry her hair. And I just wanted to know who those people were. And when I was in Brisbane recently, I went and I visited her grave because I'd never seen it before. And I discovered that her parents had chosen to put a Ren and Stimpy quote on the headstone. It says, happy, happy, joy, joy, which is something she used to say all the time because she was a kid in the 90s. And it just, uh, it really got me in the heart because it was a time capsule of someone I knew. It's strange visiting a 13-year-old and not really having anything beyond that. Most of us seem to be caught in these 
quite powerful conflicting feelings, something about it that makes us turn our gaze, lower our voices, clear out of the way. What do you think is at work in people's minds with that? Is it reverence or horror or something else? What do you think, Hayley? I think there's a couple of things at play. I think there's definitely fear. And Ernest Becker wrote a book called The Denial of Death, which is all about how the fear of death is so built into us, it's so biological, that it's something that actually propels us through the world. It's something that makes us make art and get up in the morning because if you think about death too much, you just collapse in on yourself. So I think that is in us. But also I think people don't don't want to talk about it because they think it's a downer. You know, it's the traditional dinner party ruiner. But something I discovered when the book came out is that that is sort of nonsense. Because as I've been going around doing book talks and book signings, I've discovered that people are desperate to talk about death. Every book signing I've done, every person who lined up didn't just come to get their book signed. They, it was just a series of harrowing stories or really funny stories or stories by retired detectives who wanted to tell me about the worst thing they've ever seen. So what I've concluded is that the whole premise that we don't want to talk about death is not really the case. I think people are just looking for an opening. And maybe the fact that I was talking about this stuff on stage gave them the excuse to talk about it. And in all the people I spoke to, people who are close to death every day are the most down-to-earth, tender, gentle people. And I'm sure there are the people who do it just for the money, although there isn't all that money, all that much money in it. But the people I found who did this work as if there was some purpose to everything they did, every tiny little gesture and kind thing that they did that nobody would ever notice but them gave them a, a sense of purpose. And they were all really funny. This was something across the board. They were all really funny because they've seen the worst that can happen. They've accepted it. Whereas in talking about death, you come across um, some people who want to throw parties and give death the middle finger and string up bunting in the cemeteries. And I don't think that's really the right way to go about it either. But the conclusion I came to at the end of this book is you kind of have to do what you need to do to get by. And if if you want to string up bunting in the cemetery, then go for it. I'm not going to take it down, but it's not for me. You met this very wise funeral director called Poppy Mardle, who said to you, the first dead body you see should not be someone you love. How did that hit you, that statement? Well, I, she was giving a speech at, it was an event for people like me, uh, people who think that death isn't spoken enough about. And it was the first thing anyone had said that day that was something I hadn't considered. Because I can tell you that dead bodies are really hard to come by. As somebody who's been looking for them all my life, um, <laughs> uh, I've, been, I've asked so many people who said, I can't take you in that room. I'm like, oh. So really, the first dead body you are going to see, if you ever see one, which isn't the case for everybody, is going to be someone you love. And Poppy said that she wished that she could bring children into her mortuary so that they can confront the reality of death before they have to, and they have a chance to separate the shock of seeing death for the first time from the shock of grief. And... If you think back to me as a little kid desperate to know what dead bodies looked like, I think that would have changed me. 
Because when I was a teenager, I was doing things like going on Rotten.com, which was the worst website on the internet. And in the Western world, we usually die in hospital and dead bodies just look like they're sleeping. And so it's not shocking and they're not frightening. They are very different to live people, but it's a completely different experience to seeing a shotgun suicide on the internet. And so I just wanted to talk to Poppy. And so I, I emailed her and I said, I was really taken by this thing you said. Can I please interview you for this book I'm doing? And she said yes. And we went and had a, a big chat and I told her that I'd never seen a dead body before. And now I felt like I was kind of on a timer and there was more urgency to it. And, and she said, well, I can't just get one out of the drawer for you because I'm not a museum. <laughs> but um, if you would like to come back, you can, you can come to my mortuary, which is this beautiful chapel. It's full of light and it smells of pine because of all the coffins. And she said, you can come back and we can train you as if you're going to work here and you can dress somebody to get them ready for their funeral. So and I what did you back. think when she said that? Did you went, whoa, wait, baby steps? <laughs> or did you think, sure, I'll, I'll dress your dead person? I could not believe it. I was so excited. Because there are differences in the UK and the US. In the US, that would never be allowed because you have to go through all sorts of, you have to go to mortuary school, you have to be licensed in order to be near the dead. Whereas in the UK, it's a bit more lax. So that is something that if I was reporting in the States, it never would have happened. And so I went back and it was, I'm not a religious person, but it was profound and it was strangely spiritual. Why? Well, you're the last person to touch this, this man. He, he, he was being cremated the next day and we were taking off the clothes that he had died in because his family wanted to keep them. And we were putting on the clothes that his family had selected from his house for him to be cremated in. And you can't help it, but when somebody gives you a bag of clothes, you start constructing a personality from what you find. There were holes in his socks. I could tell that he had been a fit guy, even though in the the last years of his life, I think there had been massive weight loss because I could see the, the hole on his belt was was new and it was really tight it was it was like the the smallest hole was really new so he wasn't an old man then no he was just uh, he was in his 40s i believe and um he was very yellow from jaundice and i was really fascinated by the colors of him so he was yellow but his ribs were green uh the back of him was purple because when your heart stops beating your blood pools and if you're lying on your back that's where it goes so as we dressed him, we were turning him and, um, and I was seeing all of these colours that he was. And also as we turned him, air escaped from his lungs. And we dressed him and we positioned his hands and we put him in his coffin. And I found it, it's really hard to put into words how it feels. And that's annoying because my job is to put things into words. But I really wish that people could experience that. And the fact that Poppy gave this to me is something I'll be forever grateful for because I have been able to confront the reality of what death looks like. So I feel like when death happens in my family, I'll be the one who's more prepared. I'll have to help my brother and sister through this and they will probably be encountering a dead body for the first time. Whereas I might be able to focus on grief and that side of it. Whereas they're getting all of this at once. And I think that's so unfair on us. 
that we have to take that in all at once. Because it didn't used to be like that in the past. Dead bodies would stay in the house, and they still do in Ireland. There was a, a neighbourhood woman. She was in charge of dead bodies and also births, because birth and death were seen to be the realm of women. And so the neighbourhood lady would come out and lay out a dead body so that people could visit them, usually in the, the front room of a house. But in the 20th century, that was taken away from them and it was commercialized. And one of the ways that it has stayed commercialized is the funeral industry has promoted this idea that dead bodies are dangerous and we cannot be near them. That's a really useful thing for them when they're selling things like embalming and, and all. They make it this mysterious land that we're not supposed to know anything about. Those profound feelings you had afterwards... Do you think mm. they might have been bound up in the fact that you were able to do a gentle service for a dead man? I really do. And I kept thinking, I don't know who this man is. We All I knew was that we both lived in London and I kept wondering if we'd ever been on the tube at the same time before or had we ever bumped into each other. Something I found with everybody who did these jobs is they got something from the fact that they were doing something. And I really understood that because when somebody dies and you have to organise a funeral, everybody is desperate to do something. Someone's always making lasagna or somebody is desperate to pick the photo that goes on the front of the little booklet. Everybody wants to do something. And what I got from dressing this dead man is I realised that there is something you can do, which is both practical you're using your hands, you're doing something, you're somewhere else. You're not in a house just trying to reckon with your feelings. You're actually with the person and you're getting them ready for the next thing. It, to me, it was the last thing you can do for someone. It's like doing up a kid's shoelaces at the school gate before they run away from you. We have this chance to have this transformative, profound experience and we, we waste it by giving it away to strangers. To me, that is desperately sad. You went to visit a man who creates death masks. This was Nick Reynolds. I think one of the most troubling and fascinating things I ever saw as a kid was Ned Kelly's death mask in the old Melbourne jail. And Julius Caesar and other Roman aristocrats back in the day would visit a room of ancestors where they would have rows of wax death masks of their ancestors in an ancestor's room. It seems like there's some odd occult power with those masks. Do you get that sense from a, a death mask, the profound feeling of strangeness of it? They are strange. And Nick Reynolds, the, the death mask sculptor, was telling me that Victorians believed in animism. You could house someone's spirit. The, the death mask served as a kind of house for them to live in. And I'm not sure I believe in that. But they do have something in them because I've seen life masks of people next to death masks of them. And there is something special about them. Is it the intimacy? I felt a strange sense of intimacy with Ned Kelly. A man died nearly a century before I was born. To be close to that death mask felt almost improper because of its intimacy. Yeah, it's a very, very private moment, but also it's incredibly fleeting because that that face wouldn't remain as it was caught in that moment for very long because dead bodies change. When I was talking to Nick Reynolds, he's quite a political guy, and one of the things he did was he cast the face of a man who had been executed in Texas. He wanted to use it in an art piece about the horror of the death penalty. 
And in order to do this, he met the guy beforehand to ask him if this, if he would be okay with this. And Nick believed this man to be innocent, by the way. He wasn't casting anybody. There had been appeals for his release that hadn't worked. But he met with this guy and the guy said, yeah, this death masks, I, I would be into that because you, that's the kind of thing that is usually for pharaohs and kings and not for people like me. And he felt like he would be somebody if Nick did a mask. And so Nick went to Texas for this guy's execution. He obviously didn't see it, but after he had been killed, he asked the, the mortuary if he could take a death mask. And the prison mortuary said, absolutely not. You're crazy. What are you doing? And so they had to lie and pretend that they were going to take the body to the funeral home. But they had no funeral home. So what they actually had huh. was this little shack in rural Texas where they were going to take the body. So then they essentially kidnapped this body. His wife was in the car. She was holding this man's hand. It was The hand was poking out of the body bag. It was the first time she had touched him in 12 years. And they drove to this little shack in Texas and it was really, really hot. And also, also to travel, Nick had only brought a very small amount of the, the blue rubber alginate that you need to pour onto the face in order to make a plaster cast. So he was kind of panicking because this blue stuff sets very, very quickly in heat. So he used ice water to keep it cold, which meant that when he poured this stuff on this guy's face, and this man had only recently been killed, he was still warm. He poured this blue rubber alginate on the man's face, and when he, pu when he pulled it off later... The guy had goosebumps. And I thought when Nick was telling me this story, that can't be true. Because how can a dead body have goosebumps? And then he brought out the death mask and I was able to run my hands over this guy's face and it was goosebumps. It was like when you pull the tail off a lizard as a kid and the tail keeps moving. There are things the body just instinctively does in the, the final moments. What did he tell you about why he does this work? He sees it as his duty because nobody else is doing it. He didn't want to do death masks. He was doing life masks. His dad was a, a famous British robber. He was the mastermind of the great British train robbery. With Ronnie Biggs. And, yeah, with Ronnie Biggs. And so he's a sculptor and an artist. And it started with him just wanting to do life masks of all of these, these dead robbers, these famous thieves. And then he got to one of them as he'd just died. It had taken ages to track him down and he had died just days before. And so he asked his sister if it would be all right if he cast his face anyway. And so he did. That was his first death mask. And he said the only difference was that he didn't have to put little straws in so that the guy could still breathe. Other than that, the process was the same. He casts faces, he casts hands, he's cast the little feet of babies. He says it breaks his heart every time he has to do it. Again, there's that idea of service. Was this a mm -hmm. theme that ran through nearly all the people you spoke to? It was. But the acts of service weren't always things that anyone would ever notice. There was this funeral director in Minnesota. He had been a funeral director for years, and he said that when people bring in the bag of clothing, they always forget the underpants and the socks. Always. And he couldn't bury anyone without them being fully dressed. So he had spare underpants and socks. No one would ever know if he didn't put them on the corpse, but he would. And then he went on to work 
at the Mayo Clinic where he was in charge of all the cadavers for the medical school. And if somebody was doing that job and they hadn't come from a funeral home background, I think they would have taken that job and done it very, very differently. But with Terry, he never lost sight of the fact that these were people. We're talking now about people who've donated their bodies to science? Yeah. And it was never pure science and medicine. It was always these are people and they gifted their bodies to this institution for this purpose. So we'll, we will treat them with respect and do everything that we would do in a funeral home. The Mayo Clinic is this incredible place. You will have heard about them when there's something experimental. And in, in this case, he was telling me about a face transplant. There was a young man who had lost his face in a, uh, a suicide attempt. He'd lived and then he was waiting for a face transplant. And then a, a few years later, a, another young man a couple of states over, did the same thing, but he died. He had a face and they were going to do a face transplant. But in the years that this guy was waiting for a new face, teams of doctors at the Mayo Clinic were practicing on cadavers in Terry's lab. And he would bring out the bodies and he would set them up as if it was going to be a real surgery. And over the weekends, for, for years, this team of doctors and anaesthetists they practiced swapping the faces. And over the time, they swapped a hundred faces. And the thing that got me was that Terry wouldn't just then take the bodies who have their new faces and put them back in the, the freezer. He would stay late and he would swap the faces back. And this is not because anyone would ever recognize them. They're highly anonymized. But he would swap the faces back because he believed that you should leave with everything you came in with. And he kept that promise. That comes from being a funeral director and dealing directly with the grieving. That's not the, the mind of a scientist, I don't think. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Speaking there before, as you were, about that concept of service and gentleness and integrity within that idea of service, you've got a quote that you saw on the wall of a CEO of a company, a quote from William Gladstone, the Victorian British Prime Minister, who said, quote, Show me the manner in which a nation cares for its dead, and I will measure with mathematical exactness the tender mercy of its people, their respect for the law of the land, and their loyalty to high ideals. Now, this was the CEO of a company called Kenyon. Tell me what Kenyon is and what they do. Kenyon, there's a reason you haven't heard of them. I hadn't heard of them either. It's this disaster response company. And it's a collection of people who used to have other jobs. So it's where people end up after they stop being detectives or firemen or doctors. It's like an apocalypse crew. And what they do is whenever there is some disaster in the world, they are called in by the people. It's a commercial company, so they're paid. They're called in to deal with the disaster, and the disaster might be a plane crash, or it could be a tsunami, or it could be an earthquake. 
They come and they collect the bodies. They work hard to identify the bodies. And they also, um, they do something that the police don't do, which is collect personal effects and try and find living relatives to to give them to, to return them to. Because personal effects, if they're not seen as evidence or useful in the solving of a crime, they're not really interested, interesting to police. But Kenyon has this idea that something that a person had with them at the time of their death, it, it changes. It becomes some kind of a talisman. So they, they see it as very important to return it. And when I went to their their office, which is in this really boring part of London, it's out by Heathrow, the airport, which is by design because if a disaster happens, they need to be ready to go immediately. They can't drive an hour across town. So they've got this big warehouse. And when I was there... The warehouse was full of all of the personal effects from Grenfell Tower, which was a tower in West London that burned and um, many people died in it. And then it just sort of loomed over London and it was it was horrific. So the the warehouse was full of things like Britney Spears CDs and cots and high chairs and BMX bikes. And they were trying to find the people who owned them to return them. So it's this burned out charcoal building. People are on their hands and knees trying to find things to bring back to the warehouse. They found a fish tank and there was fish still alive in it. There were many dead fish, but there were some alive. And they brought them back to Kenyon. They found the family who owned the fish and because they were living in temporary accommodation, they couldn't take them on. So one of the staff members at Kenyon took it home and then the fish somehow managed to breed despite the fact that they had been through this time of having no oxygen, no food. They had been in a tank full of dead fish. When they got to their new place, they bred, and there is now a baby fish that they've called Phoenix. Oh, my God. The miracle fish baby that came yeah. out of the, this, <laughs> this disaster. What effect does it have, though, returning personal effects, even if they are as seemingly inconsequential as a Britney Spears CD or a fish tank to people who've lost a relative that once owned those those little household objects. Well, when I was waiting to speak to people, I was flipping through these. They had these lever arch files of photos of personal effects that hadn't found their owners yet. And obviously, I had no connection to these things, and I still found it haunting. There were glasses that had been smashed in some explosion or plane crash. There were books that were all bloated from being in the sea. There were little Smurf dolls, prayer cards and car keys. It felt so personal and so intimate. It's like what you were saying about the death masks. It's like something, they hold a power. And so I I completely agree with Kenyon that this is something hugely important that they're doing, even though other people might say, well, what's the point in returning the Smurf doll to the family? It doesn't matter all that much. But when you're the person receiving it, I think it matters hugely. You went there to an open day where prospective clients came to Kenyon's offices, who typically are the people who would may consider employing them down the track. Every airline that you can think of had a representative there. So everybody was planning for something to go wrong. Um, there were also local councils, there were gas companies, basically any company that deals with a huge amount of people. It was really, uh, it was really kind of frightening seeing, you know, identifiable airline logos 
sitting next to me, <laughs> planning for the worst thing that can ever happen. And I found that Kenyon said that whenever anyone plans for a crash, they do this weird thing where they always plan for it to happen in their own country, which is rarely where the plane crashes. And so in their disaster plan, they're using... They're using all the infrastructure and all the people and all the companies they know. But when the plane crashes in a country where they know no one, they don't know what to do. And the thing that Kenyan is good at is they have people everywhere. You went to meet a woman who sometimes names herself Lara the Corpse Servant. <laughs> Tell me about Lara. What was her job? So Lara is an anatomical pathology technologist, otherwise known as an APT, because that is a mouthful to say. And basically what they do is they do all of the practical work of taking a body apart for the pathologist to then poke through and test and, and things. So they work in usually in the basement of a hospital and there'll be maybe five of them to one pathologist. And each of them has one body that they're dealing with. And um, I met Lara years and years ago at some death event. And I remember seeing her again. Sorry, a death event? What's a death event? <laughs> it was some convention. I don't think I've been I... to a death event, but uh, <laughs> what was the death event, Harley? Oh, it was something, I was trying to remember what it was called. It was called the Ideal Death Show. And it was a convention <laughs> somewhere in England, which was basically a gathering of people who make coffins or shrouds or who are celebrants and funeral directors and embalmers. And they all get together and it's basically a big booze up. So they're surrounded by people who won't be grossed out by any of their stories so they can finally have a, you know, a very free time. And like I said before, they are very funny people. They're great to hang out with. And there was a award ceremony there and Lara was up for APT of the year. And um, I was sitting next to her friend Lucy, who leaned over and she said, Lara does so much work that she never talks about publicly. And that she had worked on the victims of um, a London terror attack. And she just keeps it all quiet. And of course, as soon as I get some idea that somebody is keeping something quiet, I want to know about it. So I begged Lara. It took a while. She had to clear it with her superiors. But I wanted to see what she did as a job. So I went into the mortuary where she works and I watched her take apart a body. And it was completely fascinating. And, you know, I said earlier, I'm not spiritual. There's something... seeing pieces of a person just as organs like I don't see that as unmagical to me it is incredibly magical that all of this works and also that it doesn't just all fall out of us it's kind of gross to think about it was an extraordinary day in the mortuary all of these women were very funny they all had like green hair and purple hair and loads of piercings and they were just getting on with their job you held a brain the seat mm -hmm. of consciousness and this is something that normally sits inside a thick, bony prison, a skull. And there it is sort of exposed to the light of the outside world in your hands. This is how we perceive the whole world. Did you marvel at that, Hayley? Of course. She she gave me the brain as she um, she nipped off to get something else. So I was standing there for a good few right. minutes hol holding just this thing. Just go after the loo. Hold this yeah. brain for me. Right. Yeah. It, no, it, genuinely, it was that. And um, so I stood there holding this brain and <laughs> it, it flattens. Brains are like jelly. They're not like hard and pink like you see them in, in cartoons. They flatten. There's a reason it is in such a hard shell. And 
all I could think of when I was holding it was, you know, I used to write about boxing. I was a boxing journalist for a bit. And just the idea of so much blunt trauma being inflicted on this thing, which was jelly, like in my hands, I would be afraid to touch it too hard. And all the stuff we put brains through, like American football, when they charge at each other, it is insane to me. You know, even headbanging, like picture, if you see somebody headbanging, all I can picture now is this jelly, you know, in the washing machine of their skull. The things we do to this organ is crazy. Um, I've now been a lot more gentle with my own head. <laughs> but yeah, it, when you see it and you hold it in your hands, because I had spoken to a neuroscientist months prior to this. And what struck me about talking to him is that he said he'd never got to hold a brain. In neuroscience, it was more sort of theoretical. It was about consciousness and and messages being passed. It wasn't about the actual physicality of the brain, at least in his studies. So after that, I texted him on the on the train home and said, I got to hold a brain today. So I beat him. <laughs> and consciousness, of course, still remains and will probably always be mysterious to us because we're, when we try to think about consciousness, it's thinking about thinking or thinking about ourselves or the uh, it, it's like the hall of mirrors we've got, to, we've got to stare down. And no one can agree on what it is. I hope they never do either for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> the, 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 this, this idea of this squishy, unseemly-looking thing in your hand was the seat of this lifetime of memory, sensory perception, the entire sense of reality of that person who contained in this squishy, strange, curly thing. How strange. And again, so intimate. And I was told as I was holding it that in the UK, most deaths happen either in the heart or the brain. So I could have been holding the thing that killed him. I don't know. I wasn't there for the, the diagnosis of death. It, it was a suspected stroke, I think. So I think it might have been the thing that did kill him. Just a very emotionally overwhelming day for me in that little basement. And she goes in there every day. And this is the thing that, that I just can't get my head around. These people do the, these moments that I had that were so huge is just their daily work. The person you met that makes me draw in a fair bit of breath before I can even bring her up was a woman called Claire Beasley, who was, who is, a bereavement midwife. I never knew there were such people in this world, but of course, there would have to be. When you met Claire, how quickly did you warm to her, Hayley? I basically called her mum within 20 mm. seconds of meeting her. She, she was, she had this, these huge eyes and this kind of blonde beehive thing and she had this really warm Birmingham accent and she just asked if I wanted a cup of tea and I felt like I could tell her anything instantly and I think in the worst moment in your life you want someone like her and I didn't know she existed at all and the reason I found her is because that day when I was in the mortuary with Lara the corpse servant she had warned me that it was also a paediatric pathology department. So there was likely to be, it was this big room. So there was, it, there were lots of autopsies happening at the same time. But she said there was likely to be children in there as well. And she warned me and I thought, well, that's probably fine. At this point, I had seen thousands of dead bodies. So I felt like I would probably be fine with whatever came next. And it turns out I was really really cocky. And I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't 
I didn't feel anything. I, I was kind of in reporter mode where I'm trying not to feel anything and, and I can process it later. Sometimes I can do that. So when I saw this baby, I was strangely fine. I was, it was all biology. It was all science. And it was only later in the weeks after that, I, I pretty much did no work. I went to bed and I was dealing with something huge. I couldn't, I couldn't get a grasp on what was happening. I had horrible dreams. I, I really couldn't think or work, so it was no use trying to. And then I thought, I want to talk to somebody who has seen what I've seen. So I went and I talked to Lara again. But then I wanted to go further because I realized in, in seeing this that midwives are also death workers because not all babies live. And it felt really stupid and obvious that I had never noticed that or realized it before. So I emailed a charity called Sands and I asked them to put me in touch with a midwife that I could interview for my book. And they sent me to Claire, who was a bereavement midwife, which is something I had never heard of. And she works on a ward where that's all that happens. And um, yeah, the fact that Claire would do this job, I couldn't, I just wanted to know why somebody would devote their life to the worst thing. How did she find herself in that line of work? She kind of like, like I did, she went in search of it. Because when she was a young midwife, she, she had not experienced death in her life at all. She still had her grandparents. And so she kind of dreaded being sent to the side of a, a woman who, whose baby was dying. She didn't know how to deal with it. She couldn't make it better. And so she felt like she was failing at her job. And, and it was horrible. And, and then she heard that somebody was putting together a bereavement team, a, a team of midwives who would specialize in this moment. And they were going to be specially trained in what they could do. And so she went to that and then she's made it her life because she she's found a way. She can't make the situation go away. She can't bring the baby back to life, but she can do something. She can make it better for the family. And does she encourage them to hold the baby? After? She does. She said that act of holding the baby is such a huge part of coming to grips with what has happened. It's a huge part of grieving. And she she sees it as such a hugely important job. And and she said that her job could easily become one of an admin thing because she's so senior that she she doesn't really need to be involved in in the births, but she wants to be because she wants to be one of those people who remembers it, remembers your baby. And she's she makes little memory boxes of photos of the baby, little handprints and feet prints. And she said that mothers will come back and just want to talk to her about it and she'll remember the baby. It's a huge job. Has this process of meeting these people that live in this twilight world that we, we keep in twilight, how has it affected you in the long run? I mean, you write that if there's anything you want the reader to take from this, it's that you should consider where your own limits might be. In doing this, did it leave you more robust or tough or more vulnerable? Well, it, if you'd asked me years ago, um, it would have been a different answer. I, I was kind of a mess for a bit, but I wouldn't take any of it back. I'm really, really glad I saw the things I did because, you know, people who lose their baby 
are exiled, even if you have friends who lost their baby, like nobody knows what to say to them because nobody knows what their experience is. And I don't know what their experience is, but I feel like I understand it a bit more. And I I found out as I was speaking to these people that nobody nobody ever tries to see all of it. Everybody who works in death just sees their one little bit. And that's the way they can keep doing it every day. Because all they're dealing with is like Lara's just dealing with the actual bodily functions, trying to give a voice to this dead body and say why they died. And somebody else in the funeral home is just dressing them. And the grave digger is just burying them. They're not, nobody is going to each of these places and seeing everything. So, in a way, what I did was, well, it could be seen as a bit silly, but I'm really glad I did. And I came out of it feeling, I think, more tender. And I am more conscious of time now. And, and I, when I spoke to the homicide detective, he said this too. He just cannot be bothered with stupid forms. Like doing work for the sake of doing it rather than something that actually needs to be done. I, I, I'm impatient with things like that because time is incredibly limited. And... And also I found myself mourning people while they're still here. I have this collection of photographs of the back of my dad's head. For some reason, I think it's because when I was a kid, his his um, drawing board was always off to the... He had this room off the side of the, the dining room. And the view of my dad I saw the most of was the back of his head. He thinks he went grey starting from the back because everyone was just staring at him. You're staring, effectively wilted the hair on the back of his head. He prematurely <laughs> he really aged did. it, right. <laughs> <laughs> he went white like Leland Palmer. Um, <laughs> so that's how I remember him as a kid. And um, even now when he comes to London and he's sitting at the dining room table drawing something on his computer, I will take a picture of the back of his head. And he didn't know I was doing this until he read it in my book. He probably thinks I'm a, a freak show, but... You're a total I, some, pervert. I know. Furtively photographing for... <laughs> the back of your, your dad's head. Well, when I say that, when I really, all I'm really hearing here is tenderness, though, Hayley. Yeah, I love them. And um, I'm like that with everybody now. So I'm, I wouldn't say I'm constantly on the brink of tears, but they're far more close to the surface than they ever were. Oh, this has been an amazing conversation with you, Hayley. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hayley Campbell's book is called All the Living and the Dead, An Exploration of the People Who Make Death Their Life's Work. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.